Okay, so we are, I thought we were going to wrap up Genesis chapter 3 today, but a couple things as I started looking at um, the rest of the, the chapter and, and thinking about it more. Um, one was I, I became pretty captivated by um, the, the section we're going to look at today, but also I felt like I needed more time to really um, study and prepare to teach on the actual section of um, the curse and, and um, uh, that, that whole section that, that begins there in verse 14 and to the end of the chapter. So today, we're going to, um, we're going to just start with, or we're going to pick up where we left off um, in verse 7, and we're going to uh, focus our attention uh, on verse, verses 7 to 13. Um, and as we've been talking about, that uh, Genesis chapter 3 is, and much like Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, is foundational uh, for all that follows in the scriptures. It's foundational for us to have an accurate worldview. Um, it answers this massive question of what happened when you look at it in, in, against the backdrop of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 in this perfectly ordered world and this perfect environment in the garden. Uh, this perfect uh, complementary relationship between man and woman, this perfect and unhindered fellowship between God and his creation and, and between man and woman uh, and himself. And we look at the, the world today and we have to ask the question, what happened? And, of course, Genesis 3 um, begins to answer that question in the most fundamental and profound ways. Alan P. Ross, the writer of Creation and Blessing, says it this way. He says, whereas Adam and Eve had life, they now will have death. Where they had pleasure, they now will have pain. Where abundance, now a meager sustenance by toil. Where perfect harmony with God and with each other, now alienation and conflict. Uh, Ross goes on, also goes on to note that even when you look at the, the text and the way the narrative is written and flows out there, uh, particularly in verses 8 all the way through 19, um, through the end of the curses, you see this, this uh, inverted order that, that, that flows out. It it's, it's starts with the interrogation of the man in verses 9 to 12, and then it goes to an interrogation of the woman, and then there's this oracle, this, this cursing of the serpent by God in verses 14 to 15, the curse of the woman in verses 16, verse 16, and then the curse of the man in verses 17 to 19. So you have this progression of man to woman to serpent to woman to man. So there's this inverted order there. And at the center point of that uh, order in the text, you have this focus on the serpent, and it becomes central to the arrangement, Ross says, which is where the perpetual struggle of good and evil is announced. So Genesis chapter 3 becomes foundational for us in our worldview and understanding um, the, the introduction of sin and evil, the introduction of fallenness, the introduction of, of corruption um, in the world that we live in now. And points to the need of salvation, the need of redemption, the need of a fundamental answer or remedy for this, this fallen planet and, and the fallen lives of men and women. We've spent some time, as I said, looking at the first seven verses of Genesis. And, and today we're going to, and obviously that deals with the, the temptation and sin of the first man and woman, which of course catapulted... Um, humanity and the created order into uh, sin and turmoil and decay and ultimate death. But today, I'd like for us to focus our time on verses 7 to 13. We're going to repeat verse 7 for, for the sake of context. 
and um, go all the way to verse 13. And really what I'd like for us to do is kind of discuss and walk together through these passages. I have, I have questions that I want to put out to you guys uh, all throughout the study today because um, I want to just kind of probe our thinking as we look at this amazing confrontation that takes place uh, there in the garden. But to set the whole context for us, let's go ahead and just pick up in Genesis chapter 1, and we'll read down through verse 13. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But, God, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So I want us to just kind of walk through this this passage. This is a very, to me, a very sad uh, confrontation, but also incredibly fascinating um, study for us in the nature of how man deals with their sin um, and how man deals with accountability for sin. And the first thing uh, you notice there in verse 8, actually, uh, you notice this in verse 7, I should say, right? It's in verse 7 where um, it says, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and so what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This, this really is representative of man's feeble attempt to cover sin. It's, it's a very feeble, temporary, and in many ways absurd attempt to, to cover sin. Um, obviously, you see this, this repeated theme of nakedness, but now it brings shame. Nakedness before, there was what? Innocence, an absence of shame. There was no shame. So, so clearly, you, you see that something is different here. Um, that somehow, nakedness is not just about the absence of clothing, right? It's about much more here. It, it, it points to the fact that nakedness, or we could just call it full exposure, unveiled exposure, brings now shame, this recognition, this presence of sin. Whereas before, full, expo- full exposure gave us a view of nothing but innocence, of purity, complete absence of shame. So a very dramatic uh, turn here. You also see um, that fear and foolishness and pride leads to 
just completely, utterly inadequate human solutions to address consequences of sin, um, but obviously they're not sufficient, um, and they only mask the consequences, and they certainly don't do anything to address the root issue, right? So you have, you have this picture of Adam and Eve trying to just cover up the consequence, put, put something over the consequence. Now just think about that in terms of the nature of sin and what we do. We try to mask consequences. And, and this just, again, highlights how we are not able to save ourselves. We are not able, no matter how hard we try, to mask sin, to cover sin, or to remedy the results and consequences of sin or the root of sin that we bear in our, in our very essence as fallen creatures. We cannot do anything to address the root issue. But then when you get into this confrontation, this is where it gets just even more compelling and, and interesting and, and really convicting in many ways. Um, what you see beginning in verse 8 and going all the way down through verse 13 is you see God's pursuit of a confession. He, he's pursuing honesty and truth in, in, in a confession of sin. There's clearly a pursuit here. But what happens in verse 8? You see the absurdity of Adam's concealment. Now think about this for a second. In verse 8, you have, you have this, um, this recognition that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. Now, why, why is that just the most absurd thing ever? Can you hide yourself from the presence of God? Right? Of course not. And you would have to think that they knew that. But then it, it gets even more, um, it gets even more, to me, interesting here. Because you have, um, you have this pursuit and this, this relentless uh, patience and purpose of God that continues to carry forward. Because he starts with this, what I call an omniscient interrogation. He says, where are you? Now, is that a question about location? No, he's asking, where, where are you spiritually in your relationship? It has nothing to do with physical location, right? God is omniscient. In the same way that it, it's, it's absurd on the other side for, for them to hide or try to hide from the presence of the Lord, this question from God has nothing to do with their physical location. Obviously, that would... That would expose God as not being able to know where they are in the world that He just spoke into existence. I mean, that would be a that it would be such a contradiction to everything that's come before, and really a contradiction to the very character and nature of God Himself. But what does this tell us about the effects of sin? What, what does it tell us? What is it? It disrupts fellowship, right? So the, the idea here is that, that Adam and Eve are not hidden from God's sight, but there is a breach. There is a break. You going to say something? Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the way that the whole narrative flows out, he is after, he's after a confession. There, there is a, a relentless pursuit here that's taking place. And, and in some ways, like I said, it's, it's, it's somewhat baffling. I mean, think about it for a second. The God who is omniscient and omnipresent is engaging in what looks like a game of hide-and-seek. And then that follows with a line of questioning to, with, with, uh, of questions that he already knows the answer to, right? So clearly this is, not, this is not for God's benefit. This is not for God's enlightenment. It's all about, to, it's all about revealing something both to Adam and Eve and to us, to the readers of Scripture. So we obviously see here that that it's absurd to think that we can hide from sin. They couldn't hide from sin. But it's also important for us to note that sin always creates a breach in fellowship with God. A breach. So you see, like I said, this relentless purpose and patience of God. There is a patience here because he's laboring to ask these questions. right? He's not going to just, you know... He, he could have just you know, bypassed that whole process and just said, we're done. You ate the fruit. I told you what I was going to do. It's over, right? I mean, that's, that's the prerogative of a sovereign, law-giving, word-keeping God. But that's not what happens here. So again, we, we see, as I said uh, in the last couple of weeks, how this helps us um, with our worldview and giving us an accurate view of what happened and, and the nature of the world that we live in now. But it also gives us indications of the character and nature of God. Just the way that this dialogue takes place is revealing of the heart of God and his patience and he, as he's pursuing uh, a confession. So, interestingly, from, from Adam to this, in his response to this question, where are you, you get this rambling but very revealing response. Now, listen to the response. So the question is very simple. Where are you? But listen to the answer. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So, in other words, he didn't say, I'm right over here behind these trees. That, that would be the answer to the question. Where are you? Right over here. Trees, right to your, to your right, to your right. I mean, he, you know, nothing like that. There was no... No straightforward answer. In, in fact, you get this, this rambling kind of response, it seems. So instead of saying, I'm right over here, he says, well, I heard you coming, and I was afraid. Uh-oh. We have a problem, right? There, there was no, I mean, there shouldn't be fear here, right? Unless there's something wrong. So again, God is pursuing a confession here. So he makes this statement, I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked. Oops. Exposure. I was naked. So I hid. So again, clearly nakedness is much more than just the absence of clothing when you consider that it's now associated with fear and shame. Let me ask you guys a question. Do you think that this represents a typical response of sinners to the presence of God. 
Does this seem typical? If so, why? And if not, why not? Well, to hide, yes, I think that that's probably often typical. But also, uh, in this pursuit, in, in, this, in this question, to respond initially with, in this kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty typical? Right? Now, it might not be, it might not be um, so overt, Right? It might not be so, we, not, we not, might not be always conscious that that's what we're doing. You have to kind of be reflective and think about this, but if you really think about areas of, of struggle for you, it might be in attitudes toward, maybe if you just thought about a person that you have a struggle with, and it's just there's attitudes that, that are often provoked just by the sound of their voice can even set us off, right? I mean, if we have people that, that we have issues with or that we maybe don't get along well with or there's been some history of conflict with. Um, there are attitudes and, and, way, and patterns of thinking that just can be provoked by the sound of their voice or the sight of them coming down the hallway, right? And then we start rationalizing in our minds that there's a reason for this that, that is, is benign. It's not, there's nothing, that's right, there's nothing wicked going on here. Okay, and so you're saying that there's no comparison to our experience? Yeah, but I'm, I'm speaking of the redeemed, eyes have been opened, life has been renewed, believer in Christ who ha- has a communion with God, not a pre-fall communion, but does have a communion with God, kind of a and, but yet still struggles with exactly. the flesh. Right. Well, there's also grace that's been revealed, you know, in redemption that is that's something. What I mean. Yeah. Were you going to say something? Yeah, just uh, that number one, Romans one does tell us that men, man does 
suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to talk. I got some thoughts on that too as we conclude and look at some, some principles as well. I, I totally agree. So, so you move on in the, in the narrative here, and you go from this, um, this rambling and revealing response that Adam gives um, to really what I would consider to be a more accusatory line of questioning. I mean, the, it's, like the, it's like the prosecuting attorney who has irrefutable proof. I know what I know, guilty, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to force a confession here with my line of questioning. That's kind of the, the imagery that you get here, although it's, it's just my, my take on it. It's not uh, an interpretive thing here. But he, does, he is tightening the noose. Clearly, his questioning is tightening the noose here. So if you look at verse 11... After, after Adam's response of, you know, I, was, I heard you and I got afraid and because I, I, I realized I was naked, I hid myself. Verse 11, he says, well, who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So he's going right at it now. He's going right at it with more, more of an accusatory interrogation here. Like straight at the, the, the point of guilt, the point of infraction. And yet, again, the very fact that there is a level of patience in this interrogation is profound. Again, this just, God knows everything. He knows what's happened here. And yet, he's still pressing in to, in, in a sense, rescue Adam. I mean, to, pull, to get confession, to get truth, to get him to, to, to own up to the, what is true. Um, there's a there's a pursuit here that's just astounding, and a patience here that's astounding. That's right. There was no need for for this judicially, or from the standpoint of God's you know sovereign purpose, or His sovereign will, or His sovereign prerogative. None of that. Um, and yet, the nature of this line of questioning, even though it becomes more accusatory in nature. It's still, it's still evidence of God's gracious patience with sinners. It's amazing evidence of God's gracious patience with sinners. But this accusatory interrogation of man is followed by this amazing accusatory confession by man. So, it's just astounding. Verse 12. He says, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me the fruit, and I ate, and I ate. That's right. So, so even, even though he kind of confesses, I, I did it, it's loaded with accusation. It's amazing. God's fault, really. He gave it. That's right. So, so you have this, uh, it's almost like, it's, it's like this idea of an apology with the but after it, you know? I'm really sorry, but, you know, 
you did this, this, and this, and this. Um, it's really even worse than that. Now, I have a question for you. Would you say that, unfortunately, it's all too common for us to shift blame onto circumstances or to other people when we sin or fail? Pretty common, right? But is it too extreme to say that we blame God? Why, why is that not an extreme perspective to have? In other words, I think that it's, I think that it's easier for us to, to just, I mean, just in, our, in our, our, just a quick assessment of our own hearts and minds or experiences where we've struggled in some area of sin or, uh, you know, a lot of times it's in relationships. I think those are the more tangible ways we can think about, you know, these, these, um, these struggles that we have where, um, where it's easy for us to want to shift blame. We, we, are, we are behaving the way we are behaving or we're thinking the way we're thinking because there are circumstances that have befallen us that are out of our control. And it's the, if the circumstances were not there, then we wouldn't be thinking the way we're thinking or speaking the way we're speaking or acting the way we're acting. Or we, are, we, we adopt sort of a victim, a victim mentality where, in fact, we may be actually being uh, harshly treated, unjustly treated, but we are justifying our returning evil for evil, you know, our uh, uh, slanderous gossip of you know another per- toward another person, whatever it might be. We're, we're we're justifying it, we're rationalizing it, and really blaming the other person and their actions for for what we're doing. I think that that's that's an easy step for us. I mean, we 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 feel that we experience that. We kind of have to struggle and, and work at, at, at uh, repenting of those things and, and growing through those things, things all the time, I think, especially in the context of just normal human relationships, especially intimate relationships, close relationships, family and close friends and that kind of thing, and especially in the body of Christ. I think it's a, it's a, it can be a prominent struggle. But to go that extra step and say, you know, God, it's really your, your responsibility. I mean, seriously, are you, are you going to take ownership here or what? I mean... I mean, I was just dirt, and then you made me, and then you made her. I mean, you know, you could, you could, you could actually go all the way back to, I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you, and then if it wasn't for you, there wouldn't be this woman, you know, and then, you know, if it wasn't for you, there wouldn't be all this, you know, all this temptation here. I mean, it, you, can, you can always go back to that if you, if you want to in your mind. Right. So really, isn't it true that um, that blaming God is the default position? Because after all, God is sovereign and God is providential, and everything that we experience and everything that we go through, and every relationship that we're involved in. I mean, it's, it's all under the umbrella of God's sovereign decree and God's providential dealings in the world. I mean, it's so whether we do it overtly or subtly, we're lashing out against God, ultimately. 
right. Yeah, I mean, I think the point here is that you cannot blame circumstances or blame other people without blaming God. It's impossible. That's what we're doing. That's what we see here. So, so there you have Adam with this accusatory confession by man. And, of course, it doesn't absolve him from consequence. I mean, there's going to be consequence coming. But he does, he does throw Eve under the bus, and so the question turns to Eve in verse 13, to the woman. It says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, here you have a very simple and succinct question followed by a very simple and succinct confession. Simple and succinct question directed clearly at the woman, which would indicate individual culpability. So Eve's not going to get a pass here because, you know, I was created second. I mean, I, I wasn't even created first. And by the way, you're calling me a helper. I, I'm just a helpmate. I'm just, I'm, I'm like a private in the, in the chain. I mean, you know, no, no, culpa, no um, uh, um, uh, elimination of individual culpability here. The question goes directly to her. Very succinct. What is this you've done? And her response, very succinct. And it's different. It's very different than Adam's because she's really, it's really just oriented more toward description than any kind of accusation or blame shifting about anybody else. She just simply says, the serpent deceived me. She didn't say the serpent that you created and that you put in this garden deceived me and led me astray. It's very, it's very descriptive and accurate. I'm going to have to think on that one. Because okay. that goes back to the whole peccability and peccability question. Well, look at the animals. They were all naked, and this doesn't bother them. But man is so stupid in their relationship to God. Right. In all of the rest of the creation. So she may not have, so you're saying that she didn't know she was being tempted? Or I'm not sure what you're saying. I'm not sure what I'm saying either. Oh, okay. All I'm saying is that she apparently didn't have the concept of deception and that that, uh, this serpent could be lying to her. Mm. Until after she knew the difference between good and evil. I I disagree with that because because there was a command given... And, and so the command was clear. What, what establishes, I mean, you, you, there may not have been a, 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 an experience-based conception of deception, but the fact that there was a command that was given that was clear that she articulated back, even though she added a little bit to it, 
she, she, was, she, she had to know that there was an attempt to redirect. Correct. 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 Which to me, whether it's a whether it's there's a full conception of temptation or 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 deception is, I mean, it's not really a necessary remedy to, to come up with. It's that she knew that it was other than what God had said. So conceptually, yeah, I would agree that she didn't have any base of experience for prior deception, but now she knows it. Now it's clear. So the serpent, uh, that you, the, the, she says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So it's very succinct, very straightforward, and really more oriented toward description than accusation. Very different than Adam's response. So when you look at this in its entirety, the whole, the whole dialogue here with, between God and Adam, and then when he turns to Eve, and between God and Eve... Um, what, what stands out to you Just in, when you look at the whole thing? And I've already kind of given you some hints to it. To the, one of the things that I, I noticed right away. Yeah, I did it. Yeah. There's really, you don't really see any response of sorrow or, I mean, yeah, I did it versus Yeah, and just look at the look at the amount of dialogue that takes place between the two of them. I mean, compared to you know when you compare Adam's dialogue with God versus Eve's, much more with Adam, much less with Eve. And uh, what's interesting is to compare that with the prior verses and how that plays out. What what where's the emphasis of dialogue there with Eve? So you get this this first section where it almost looks like you've got Eve masterminding the whole fall of man all by herself because there's all this dialogue between her and the serpent. And then when it gets to Adam, she gave to Adam and he ate. That's all you get in the text. Then you get to the interaction between God, the confrontation of God to Adam and Eve, and there's this huge, comparatively huge portion that's devoted to the dialogue with God and Adam and very little, by contrast, to the prior section with God and Eve. Do you think Adam was present with Eve when the serpent was tempting her? It says he was with her. But that's when she ate. But do you think they were, do you think he was there the whole time? I, I, don't, I think it's somewhat speculative, but I, I think so. I, I, I think that, that, I think that when you look at this, this dialogue between God and Adam, to me, that speaks volumes of what, what really happened. In other words, if we adopt the mindset that you, if you just look at the first section and you see that she gave to Adam and he ate, you look at the way that the interaction takes place, both God's, God's line of inquiry, the nature of those questions, as well as Adam's response, and the nature of those responses, he was fully aware. I mean, he, he made a deliberate decision. You, you almost get the sense from the first section that, you know, he sits down at the dinner table thinking he's having, you know, rhubarb, and it's, it turns out to be the forbidden fruit, and he's like, he just ate it, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the imagery that you, can, you could, you know, you could interpret there a little bit. 
But when you see the dialogue between God and Adam, it's clear that he knew. And, and he, was, he, he felt like he had made uh, a decision that, um, you know, that did not warrant this kind of... I mean, he, he was sort of resistant to the, the interrogation a little bit. He was sort of like, even in his response about when he finally came clean. Like, I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting pulled into something here that just, you know. So it just, it just goes to, to highlight the fact that, that you have Adam, and again, you, we see this obviously in the New Testament vividly, where Adam is, he goes after Adam in, in the initial point of accountability as representative head, and Adam was fully, fully culpable. Not just culpable because he took the fruit and ate, and he just sort of was careless, but that he was ready to now engage in what seems like almost some argumentation with God over what really happened. Yeah, but she's she's asking the question. Was he there the whole time that that dialogue between the serpent and Eve was going on, or did he walk up and and, and say, "What you doing?" And here's the fruit. And right. Right. I mean, I I don't think that when you, if you start the intent of the passage is not to give us minute detail of you know every little thing that happened. It's very similar to other parts of, you know, historical narrative. It's in the Gospels. I mean, you don't get, I mean, if, if you think that the Sermon on the Mount is all that Jesus taught, you know, at that, I mean, that's just, that's not what that's, the intent is. So we're not going to be able to know with minute clarity here exactly what happened. But I think that by implication in the larger context that he was, he was there. He was, he was present. He knew. I mean, he, he was, he just didn't, he just didn't lead. He just didn't step up. He didn't take any initiative. And actually, he had, to, he had to make that, I think, contemplative decision to, to, to sin, he to take that fruit. He seems, he seems weak. And I think that that is the nature of falling into sin. We're weak. And we, but even before that, he didn't say anything. If he was there, he never said anything. Yeah. He never spoke up. And he didn't add anything to the conversation. He was just, just kind of on walk. Yeah, and I think I think that's incredibly poignant when you think about um, when you look at the the Genesis chapter two passage, and you see that that whole narrative play out, and God God gives Adam this responsibility to tend and keep the garden and to have dominion over the earth, and, and to, to he's naming the animals, but there's no suitable helper for him, um, and God provides this perfect, perfectly suitable perfectly complimentary helper for him and a mate and um, and yet he he completely fails her in that relationship dynamic in the in the in the fall um, I think it's a very poignant um, insight as particularly as it relates to the nature of the marriage relationship you know and all that kind of stuff so going forward Okay, so we're going to have to wrap up here, but I'd like to kind of hear from you. What are some, I mean, we've, we've touched on these. We, we've, we've probably already said these in some way or another, if not directly, but just to kind of 
encapsulate some, some principles around what we've kind of walked through here and discussed, what are some overarching principles that you think we can glean from this section of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3? I mean, there's any number, but I think there's a few that might stand out. Okay. Yep, man, I, got, I, I put man tends to rationalize and blame shift when caught in sin. No, I, 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 I put, I, I'm glad you said that because, um, yeah, I have it here. God is a pursuer of confession and repentance, even though he knows all things, is the way I kind of framed it up. But that's exactly right. There's a patience and there's a long-suffering nature of God that's revealed here, and he's a pursuer of confession and repentance. Anything else? Little bit, yeah. So, okay, I'm sorry. Can we just move on? Right, right, yeah. I don't want to talk about this anymore. And it's easy for I'm seriously, I'm sorry. Okay, you got me. Fine. It's easy for us to, you know, I guess sometimes think that God's grace is not enough, that we have just this distrust of God mm-hmm. and feel like we have to forgive ourselves before God can forgive us. Well, yeah, and that distrust is at the root of all this, right? I mean, he, they, they did not trust God. That's, that's at the root of it. Let me just kind of rattle off a few more because uh, of time. Um, I put another overarching principle is that man cannot cover his sin. He can only mask it for a time. It's only temporary. It's only a temporary cover. Um, how about this one? Man tends to hide from and resist accountability when he is in sin. So when you think of if you're involved in any kind of counseling of people, um, or if you're just examining your own heart, know, know that man tends to hide from and resist accountability in general, really, but especially when we are harboring sin, when we are holding on to sin. And if you find yourself, in, especially in if, you're, if you're trying to disciple or counsel someone, and you're finding that they are, it's hard to get them to schedule time or, you know, there, there's just, it's difficult to nail down or you're in a conversation and there's just a lot of evasive conversation going on. It's, you don't know the hearts of people clearly, but just understand that there's a principle here that you need to be discerning about, both in terms of your own heart, your own mind, your own actions, but also in terms of counseling and discipling and encouraging others, that we tend to resist accountability. We tend to hide from it or resist it, especially when we're harboring sin. 
And then, uh, well, that's all I had. Man tends to rationalize and blame shift from constant. That was the one we already talked about. Okay, good. Well, I appreciate you guys uh, involving, uh, engaging in the discussion. And uh, next week, we will, I think we'll finish out the chapter and deal with the, the curse section and then be ready after that to move into chapter four. Let's pray.